Listen to me. Everything you think you know, every relationship you've ever taken for granted, every plan or possibility you've ever hatched, every conceit or endeavor you've ever concocted, can be stripped from you in an instant. Sooner or later, it will happen. So prepare yourself. Be ready not to be ready. Be ready to be brought to your knees and beaten to dust. Because no stable foundation, no act of will, no force of cautious habit will save you from this fact. Nothing is indestructible. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Foles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, January 24th, and today we will continue on with the theme of caring and nursing, and we'll do so with Jonathan Evison, author of The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving. Evison, an American writer whose work is often distinguished by its emotional resonance and offbeat humor, has been compared by critics to a variety of authors, most notably J.D. Salinger, Charles Dickens, T.C. Boyle, and John Irving. Sherman Alexie has called Evison the most honest white man alive. In his new novel, The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, Evison, author of the New York Times best-selling West of Here, has crafted a story that is grounded in the stark reality of its characters' struggles as it is filled with the kind of hopeful joy that enables them to make it from one day to the next. A novel of the heart, a novel of unlikely heroes in a grand American landscape, it is most of all a profound look into what it takes to truly care for one another. I found Jonathan simultaneously on Netflix and on the Tree Fort Story Fort Book Club. As Willie Vlauten volunteered last week, he and Jonathan will be presenting something together at Storyfort this year, and so we have that to look forward to this March. How are you doing today? I'm doing real good. It's a writing day, so yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's curious. How many writing days do you get? I usually about three three a week. I mean, I'm always I'm always figuring. I'm always like you know making notes, texting myself, things like that. But I only get at two and a half physical days separated from my family that I work like, you know, 16 hours a day. It's just nothing but, I just do nothing but metabolize story and, and words for, you know. So it ends up being about you know, 30 hours, 35 hours. But uh, it all kind of stores up over the week, so it's usually pretty productive. I'm able to hit the ground running, whereas there used to be uh, a lot more just kind of staring at walls, looking at the window, moisturizing. Oh, it- Gotcha. So because you have this limited amount of time, now your practice really, you understand that and you can just utilize it to its fullest extent? Yeah, well, what it is, it just allows me more preparation time. I mean, I'll bet you the hours are about the same, you know, because I was always, I was, I was just writing, you know, maybe five, six hours a day, five, six days a week. But now it's just compressed. So that allows me to, um, you know, for for four days while I'm chasing kids around and paying bills and, you know, going to appointments and, and handling other stuff, I'm sort of mentally preparing myself for, for the upcoming week. So by the time I get here, it's all about focus for me more than anything because uh, I'm, I'm just really hyperactive, totally manic, total, you know, self lifelong self-medicator, just always trying to beat back my energy to, so I can focus on things. And so it actually, uh, 
helps to just have like three, four days to really prepare to sit still. And then do you have uh, like uh, Virginia Woolf's room of one's own? Do you have like a special space that you can escape your normal life from? Well, that used to be my office in the house, but uh, on Bainbridge, but you know, with the kids, it's like, it's like trying to ride under a bowling alley. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, so I separate myself. We have a little cabin out in the Olympic Peninsula, which is only, you know, an hour and a half drive away. It's not that far, but it's much more isolated. And um, I'm just out here by myself. I go from room to room in the house, you know, carrying the laptop. Sometimes I'll be out in the garage, hang out with the cat. And when you write for 12 or 16 hours or something, you got to break it up, you know? So I'll, I'll just, I'll move from every room in the house, but I do need a quiet place. I'm not one of those people that can write in public because hmm. for me, it's more like a state, you know what I mean? It's more about getting into a state. I'm not sitting there, you know, with my fingers on my chin musing. I'm just, I'm trying to get out of my own way, just completely disappear and get inside the story. Um, which is again, helpful to isolate yourself because there's no bills piling above the table here. There's no, you know, stuff uh magneted the refrigerator reminders it's just i can just kind of just disappear and do you work on one thing at a time and then have to be in that space or can you do multiple projects all simultaneously well yeah this week's interesting because i don't i'm wait, i'm waiting for some notes back from my agent on the book i'm finishing but then i have another book that's finished that's in kind of a later stage of uh later stage of production that I, I, I want to make some changes too. So I'm going to switch gears this week, but usually it's just kind of one thing. I might do a little of each depending on the timing, but um, yeah, I can't have them both open on keyboards right next to me or anything like that. I just got to sort of commit to the one thing. And, and like I said, just uh, erase the self and have it the characters. Hmm, That's interesting. I think I read something about, uh, Oh, I'm blanking on his name now. Um, oh, he wrote, Oh, it doesn't matter. But he uh, talked about the same kind of thing where he has to go into the quietest room and then have headphones on and just completely erase the world outside to fully inhabit that interior space that you're trying to reach. Yeah, I mean, that seems intuitive to me. I'm always surprised to hear when it's not like that for people because it's just kind of like a wakeful dream state to me. You know, I, I just I don't. I want to get out of the way of the authorial. I know it's going to brand itself unconsciously on the work itself. I am who I am. All this stuff, uh, you know, funnels through me and I'm the administrator of my thoughts and emotions and everything like that. So even when I'm not there, they're going to be there organized that way. But the less I can feel authorial, like this is me trying to create this effect or, you know, this is, you know, the more I can literally just sort of fully immerse myself in the story and just create my characters lovingly and, and contradicted enough that I can just inhabit them and, and, and just sort of follow them, let them teach me, let them follow me. Yeah, um, Navikov used to say his characters were his galley slaves. You know, like he just used them to his purpose. They were he just moved them around to his purpose. And I, I, I it's not that way for me. It's kind of the opposite. I mean, I, I feel like if you create them fully enough, they have fates. They have, they have, uh, as long as they have yearnings and goals and obstacles and things like this. I mean, they're as free to to roam the narrative landscape as any kind of carbon life form. You know. Well, I think the word genius comes out of this idea of genie where there's something that's you're opening yourself up to something else to come through you that the writer is the the conduit to this other thing 
Do you, do you subscribe to that at all? It kind of sounds like... Yeah, somewhat. I mean, there are moments where it's like that. I said that once, and so it's some old rich lady, and she says, oh, don't say that. That sounds like hubris. And I was like, oh, it's not like the opposite to me. I'm not taking credit. I'm just saying if I can get to a quiet spot and open my head up and, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm still scratching my head over why that sounds like hubris. I think, if anything, it sounds like the opposite. I just think there's a zeitgeist to a certain extent too. Like I've noticed, like even when I was, I, you know, for 20 years, I, I was writing unpublished books and um, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, part of, part of it was some of the books weren't that good, but like, even then I, I had philosophically, I mean, I'd have those, I'd have those moments where I felt like the conduit or whatever. And, and of course my books would never be published, but I would notice that a few years later, books that were being written at the same time with me would, would start to come out and they had like amazing synchronicity and uh, a theme of, you know, of, I, I notice this all the time. That's why I always worry when I'm two years behind. Cause I feel like if I'm writing something that's really relevant, really topical, uh, really just sort of out there now, but my publisher isn't going to publish it for two years. You kind of worry that in the, in the meantime, three books are going to come out that are doing kind of the same thing. I mean, I do believe that there's sort of, you know, I mean, they're just whatever social, political, emotional undercurrents going on out there. That you can. I sound a little weirder than usual today. No, I, mean, I think I that's I, perfect. I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't have it. You know, I mean, I don't really break it down to this, but all the time. But when I really think about, it, I mean, I don't feel like I'm an antenna or anything like that. I mean, it's all, like I said, it's all internally filtered or whatever through my apparatus. But like the, the yeah, I, I like that genie idea. I like that that that. That impetus is out there somewhere. Well, so that's kind of where. So I spoke to uh, to Willie Vlauten last week, and that was that was where I ended my conversation. Was you know I just happened upon both your work. I wasn't familiar with either of you until I, you know, found you at the this book club that Storyford is doing, and then I, the books that I just happened to read from Ishii were about caring and nursing. So like. And I asked him, you know, to me, that's kind of a synchronicity, right? You know, so like, oh, this is interesting. These things are happening at the same time in this moment right now, too. So that's the other piece of that where, you know, this is a moment where revising our ideas, our fundamentals of caregiving is really important, too. And so I asked him if he had any synchronicities. And, and he he said that he worked in themes, but that now synchronicity as defined was not like a big thing for him, but it sounds like um, where I to ask you that same question, synchronicity is something that you do pay attention to then. I don't know if it's something I'm paying attention to. I, I mean, I just think it's out there. Like I'm not looking for it. I just happen to notice. So, I mean, when you're a guy sitting around in your garage, writing unpublished novels, thinking you're great or something, probably at that point, you know, I'm in my twenties thinking, why, why, why is anybody publishing me? And then you see a bunch of books come out and you're like, wow, I wrote that book. You know what I mean? It's like, I had a book that had the same theme. I, I wrote that, you know, right. novel about ageism in Hollywood in the nineties or I, you know, you notice it, but it's not something I go out looking for. I definitely look for patterns where other people don't. Cause I think that's how you surprise yourself and surprise readers. But I, I don't, um, yeah, it's not something I subscribe to, as a general philosophy, like I'm not that, you know, I don't walk around thinking, uh, you know, imbuing every meeting with uh, added significance because it seems so coincidental or anything like that. Um, if anything, I treat every meeting like it could possibly be something, you know, I'm just open to anything, but I, I don't give it more. Am I making sense? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so convinced. <laughs> so then, what what winds are you picking up on? What is what? How is the zeitgeist blowing? You know, what what is fascinating you right now in terms of your writing? Ah, uh, connectivity. Uh, you, you know, I mean, I'm writing something again, kind of similar, not similar to West of Here, only in only in the sense that it's multiple points of view, many points of view, like I'm writing a book from 12 points of view. And um, I don't know, that seems a little significant because it seems like what's sort of going on here politically, you know what I mean? I mean, uh, in terms terms of uh, divisiveness and and, and people being broken up into groups and, you know, all the uh, tropes of fascism or whatever, you know, like, you know, you know, you got, you got all these people that should essentially agree or be on the same page. And yet they're in, there's so much infighting and so much, you know, my book's not overtly political. I'm just, I'm just trying to illustrate how right now this sort of connectivity between people and the obstacles between connectivity and how they all add up to the greater whole is sort of significant. Like my book, the book I'm writing is not at all political, sure. like overtly or anything like that. I'm just using politics as an example of what I mean by connectivity. Like, you know, it's an idea I've been kind of working to, I, I mentioned West up here. I kind of worked with it in that book too. I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's like a, a theme that's running through a whole, you know, this, this whole era, uh, you know, with West up here, I wanted to write that, you know, they always say the thing about how history is written by winter. I wanted to write a novel about how history really works, about how, how the whole architectonic whole of what we call history is based in the, uh, in the, in the, vividly realized moments of our own lives, just you and me, just regular people, not legislators or great people. Just that's what a history really looks like. And so I wanted to write a book that represented every one of those, or as many as possible, you know, across, you know, of course, both gender lines, but every, every, uh, you know, racial line I could cross, every generational line I could cross, every social economic range I could cover. I wanted to give everybody a voice and put it all together and set it in one place during two different time periods and really not write a historical novel, but write a novel about his, how history really works. Hmm. So that was all about connectivity to me too. Huh. You can listen to it a couple of times. Maybe it'll make sense. Let me know if you get figured out. <laughs> what well, did you, did you come out of an MFA? No, no, no. I, I've never taken a writing class. I've taught a few workshops um, but I, yeah, no, I, I went to, I bounced around a few community colleges, never took, I mean, I probably took a comp 100 class kind of thing, but I never took a, never taken any kind of formal, I don't, I kind of, I, you know, I don't want to get myself in trouble because so many of my friends do that and stuff like that. I just personally, for me as an ethos, it's like, I just, I don't want to be, <clears throat> I don't want to learn any shortcuts from anybody else. I just, you know, if I'm going to truly arrive at some kind of original voice, I feel like it should be, uh, arrived at individually through failure mostly, but you know, I mean, I, I, of course I've been colored and influenced by so much stuff I've read, but I don't know. It's, I, I was just never good in the classroom anyway. And then, but in terms of I, so many people want to be a writer, but like the trick is that you just write every day and you do it for a really long, long time. And it sounds like that's what you've done. Oh well, yeah. You are what you, uh, you are what you love, not what loves you, you know? I mean, yeah, I think it's it's like anything else. You can be good at it or accomplished in any way. You just have to do it a lot. I mean, it's not like Michael Jordan just was born with a great jump shot. The guy was out in the driveway after dark, you know, 
shooting jump shots. So to me, so much of it is about the work and, and creating the right work environment and workflow. So much of it is just about how I, how I approach it. Not like, you know, I don't consider myself a particularly creatively gifted in terms of coming up with great ideas or like, I'm not this big intellect or anything like that at all. I'm, I'm if anything, I, I'm more, I, I think I'm just empathic. I think I'd like, you know, if I'm driving on a city bus and I'm looking out of the window, I'm trying to, every person I pass, I'm kind of like sort of just trying to, you know, you know at least walk a couple blocks in their shoes kind of thing. But like, if I could put it in a metaphor, there's this great Bahumahur ball line that like, I'm, I am a, I am a jug full of water, both magic and plain. Huh. Well, I'm just thinking about, so for some people, there's a threshold to get through to actually get to that place where you can do the work and you have to like, you know, you almost have to trick yourself into getting into the right frame of mind or the space to do the work. But there are some things that are easier for people, you know, in terms of, oh, this is just how, you know, it's, this is my escape. I can just start writing and... You know, where, where some people, the thing that they want to do actually matches what they actually enjoy doing. Um, I'm just curious about you. Do, is it is it work for you to write as much? Oh, yeah. I mean, it just, oh, there's a ton of grunt work. I mean, there's a lot of brick and mortar work and off the page. Like, you know, I'm not like, I, I don't outline per se, like going into a thing. I don't go, okay, here's my three act structure and, you know, I've got 40 scenes laid out and I've got my note. I don't do anything like that. But like when I'm trying to crack the nut, when I'm trying to figure out what the novel's about, you know, I always think I know what it's about when I start. But then I get into it and I go, wow, this is bigger than that. This is about more. Then there's a lot of like more analytical work where I spread out papers on the ping pong table. And, you know, do I enjoy it? Yes. Is it work? Yes. And then there's moments where, you know, if I'm writing three pages of dialogue in a scene that's just really crackling with life because there's two characters and they both have something at stake and, and, and suddenly two hours goes by in a minute. Well, it's hard to call that work. You know, that feels like pleasure, but that, that, that's the minority of the work. You know what I mean? I'd say, I'd say that's, you know, 5% of the time, but is it, is there anything in the world I'd rather do? No. But, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, it doesn't look like work to play professional baseball, but for every nine inning game we watch, you know, some guys in the weight room, some guys taking batting practice, some guys are doing eye exercises or, you know what I mean? So it's like, there's a lot of work to be able to, you know, run around in your pajamas and play the ball. And it's the same thing, but, you know, sitting around in your underwear and writing whatever you want. (laughs) Right. And then in terms of your characters, are they something that you kind of, I mean, like you were saying, do you, you discover them? Is it like sculpting and you're trying to get as much out of the marble of them as you can? Or do you have a sense of who they are and that it's more like trying to get as much detail there and realize It's them? both. Yeah? It's both. Okay, so like the, the, the totem pole part, you know, you just use that totem pole uh, metaphor would be like when I'm sort of sketching out the idea of this character, like um, the novel I'm about to start is called Cave Dave. Uh, it's just about a dude who, uh, you know, drops out and lives in a cave with his uh, infant daughter and his, his wife. And, and, and so, you know, uh, <laughs> I start out by uh, I, I start out by just, you know, who's Cave Dave, you know, uh, socioeconomically, here's Dave. Dave. Here's all the jobs Cave Dave 
his ad. Best job he ever had was that muffler shop. And it's not that he loves mufflers. He just liked the working environment. Just the more you sort of narrow in working, uh, you know, deductively about who this character is kind of in your mind or even on the page, then you get to the real nitty gritty. Once you, you once you created the, the, you know, once you put in all the, all the, all the ingredients of this guy, it's not until you actually set him forward and have him start making decisions on the page that you're really going to reveal who the character is up until then. It's just a type, you know, until he actually has some sort of, uh, until he actually has to make some like hardcore decisions. We're going to, that's what's really going to define him is his decisions or her decisions. And Mm -hmm. so that's the part where it's like, um, I just follow them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, if they're good decisions, if they're they're, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to try to um, uh, superimpose my uh, worldview or ideology or anything like that on my characters so much. It goes back to the Nabokov thing. Um, I'll decide what I'm. I, I just my job. I look at my job is to ask the questions, you know, not provide the answers. And so as long as I know the questions are good, it's not like these characters are going to lead me wrong. If I put them in dilemmas where they need to make the decision and that decision when it's being made, I mean, I guess, albeit through me, when that's being made on the page, it's been made in a way that feels true and organic. So, you know, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to wrestle with them too hard to, to change what they, they think they want to be. It all makes me sound a little schizo. <laughs> no, I think it sounds great. Um, what about when your work is turned into a film, which is such a different vehicle to begin with, and then they really begin altering your characters? Oh, at that point, you know, if it's not, if I'm not putting it down on the page, it's not, it really has nothing to do with me. You know what I mean? I just, you know, I, I a few people wanted to make a new film. I talked to him. And when I talked to Rob, I, I just, I liked where he was coming from. I knew he was funny. He had a friend with, uh, he had a friend with a neuromuscular disease, so I felt like he connected to it on a personal level. And I said, boom, go, it's yours. You know, anything I can do to help, let me know. But, I mean, it's your baby, don't worry. Because, you know, he was really like, ah, I just, he was trying to wear the kid gloves with me, which you expect because, you know, writers sometimes tend to be so um, precious about this stuff. But, like, for me, it was like, you know, this is his vehicle. It's, it's an idea inspired by my idea, and that's good. That means my idea worked, inspired the conversation, to continue the conversation. So like when I sat down to watch the film at Sundance and I didn't see anything but what I saw on set, I was just very open to watching a film. I didn't, I didn't sit there and critically go, you know, there's a little part of me, oh, that first act's dragon or whatever. There's a little bit of that, but surprisingly little, you know, I felt proud to be a part of it in, in terms of inspiring it, but I wasn't, I don't know. I, I feel like that's, that's, that's outside my sphere of influence, you know? Well, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the movie was called The Fundamentals of Caring. And mm-hmm. Your book is called The Revised Fundamentals of Caring. I mean, you know, let's, I, I would hazard to guess the marketing department made a decision on that one. But I would, I would say that it's really super important to the book to have the revised. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that, yeah. That's yeah. the essence of the book. That's, yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. The movie's not the book. You exactly. know, yeah. they made a They made a neat little indie film. That was a great buddy film on the road. It was, you know, it's, you know, what, what a lot of people want out of a two hour movie. And it was great. It was the, they got the buddy part of it, but I mean, I, I don't really, you know what I mean? It's a completely different animal, even the dictates. So, yeah, I mean, I'd just be driving myself crazy if I were going to worry about that stuff. You know, yeah. I just got to be like super happy. Somebody made a film. I mean, how many books have I sold because they made that movie? You know what I mean? 
Yeah. So it just, you know, and, and I just, I'm just kind of a look at the bright side. Oh shit. Sorry. I just stepped in the cat. <laughs> Sorry, Pickles. I just stepped in the cat's tail. I won't see him for two days. Oh, Pickles. Uh, well, so what inspired the revised fundamentals of caring and how long? So that's the other thing you, you mentioned how you, you, you're tapped into the zeitgeist in a moment, but that moment, you know, when you're doing a book might be years ago in the past. Yeah, I wrote that book probably, I mean, let's see, I've, I've finished three books since I wrote that book. So I'm thinking that's probably, I wrote that book probably when I I probably wrote that book in about 2011. Uh Um, And what inspired it was just, I mean, in that case, I mean, I was a, professional caregiver and I did care for a kid with muscular dystrophy and we did take a whole bunch of road trips. Um, that, that sort of provided me with, uh, some experience and knowledge, but that still, you know, that wasn't the same as, you know, I mean, of all my books, that one's probably the most personal from my life experience. Um, but you know, I, I didn't lose, I didn't lose my kids in an accident. My parents lost their child in an accident. So, I sort of knew what that entailed and what it could do to a family and what it looked like and what that grief looked like, but it wasn't directly from my experience. Yeah. So uh, then in terms of nursing as kind of a, a theme and my own synchronicity now, does that resonate with you at all at this point or is it, you know, in the past? Oh, I mean, that's always, that's just, I mean, if we don't care for, I mean, caregiving was like, hey, you know, that's not just some idea that's going to come in and out of style. I realized uh, about the time that book came out, it's true. There was a lot of, uh, in film, like uh, shortly after that book came out, there was the one about the French caregiver and then some other films started to come out. And there's the one about, I don't know what it's called. It was a bigger Hollywood production. That was it. So, but, you know, I mean, at some point that's, that probably just becomes a little copycat when we're talking about Hollywood getting involved. But this idea of caring for each other, I mean, this, I, this, this is always there, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, all my, all, there's caregiving in all my books and, you know, and this is your life, Harriet Chance, Harriet cares for her husband with dementia. Um, you know, Craig kind of, kind of looks after, good God, that book's old. I don't remember the character's name. <laughs> Craig's kind of looking after somebody, not professionally, but he's definitely being a nurturer to somebody, um, yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, I only have a few themes: reinvention, caregiving. I mean, but they're they're just so uh, evergreen that, and I mean, I could write books forever. I feel like. I mean, they're just I'm just reporting on the human condition and and and, and my themes and masculinity in crisis. That's another one, um, which is you know, boy, that's as relevant as always. Um, you know, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't always have the best capacity to talk about it, you know. It's just what I do. Yeah. Well, I can't. Why I can't? I'm blanking on the protagonist's name in the the revised fundamentals of caregiving. What's his name? Ben. Ben. Oh, duh. Benjamin. Benjamin. Yeah. Got, yeah. The double name. Yeah, he is really masculinity in crisis. Yeah, I mean, this. Uh, you know, he's got the non-traditional role as a stay-at-home father and he didn't even do that right. I mean, that's a big part of it. And I just know from experience, I've been gone through one marriage and, and, and it didn't end well. Like just that sense of neediness that you have when you don't feel loved. Like you're just like this raw nerve out in the world. Every, every woman you meet, you're going to suffocate or scare. You know what I mean? Like, it, you know, that's masculinity in crisis. Well, that's, right. Writing poetry for a, 
a trapeze artist in a what amounts to like a bad Indian casino kind of is what it... <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that part is totally true. <laughs> She's out there somewhere. I didn't even change her name. <laughs> yeah, those are pretty raw moments. Yeah, well, they're true. I mean, some of like, you know, there's a lot of stuff in Lulu. I think it comes straight out of my life too. Um, there's a lot of stuff in all of them that do, but uh, that one, I mean, that one was just basically about my midlife crisis, which came a little earlier than it might for most. Mm-hmm. I'm well beyond it now. And I've, I've, you know, I've uh, proceeded on to my second adolescence. Can you talk about story for it at all? At all or is that a, a secret at this point? Do you have any sense of what, what's going on? I don't. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> and that's, I'm sure that's my fault much more than the organizers, but I, it's just something I've got on my docket in March, and I know I'm going to be there for like five days, and I know I'm going to enjoy the hell out of it. My pals are going to be there. Willie's going to be there. Sean Vestal's going to be there. And like Christian, somebody I've known, uh, you know, through social networking and, and online and stuff like that. I know it's going to be fun. I don't know what they've got planned for me. I'm sure they've told me. But uh, I, I know because I've just been in, un, under, under the – I've just been so busy that I'm just kind of looking at it as a vacation, even though I'm going to be doing, I'll be really active and doing a lot of stuff, but I mean, it's just going to be a chance for me to uh, kind of decompress in a way. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it also. Uh, how did, how did you meet Willie? Um, let's see. Well, they're really just booksellers over the years, you know, Willie and I had run in a, a lot of the same circles and, and, and I mean, I don't know how many times a bookseller said to me, so do you know Willie Blotton? And, and he had the same experience too. that, you know, Johnny Edison and we'd never met. And then finally one day we were in the same place at the same time, just, you know, some, some, you know, publishing trade show or something. And, uh, uh, we just ended up talking and becoming pals ever since. And then, so, you know, we've always gone out of our way to, to uh, plan events where we can do them together in different places. It's interesting because I think you're similar, similar dudes, but y- your writing is quite different, but similar a- at the heart. Yeah, no, I think that's the key. I mean, I, the first thing that comes to mind is that, we're, I mean, we're both just romantics, which sounds kind of odd maybe in a way, because, you know, Willie, Willie tends to look darker on the page because he doesn't lean as heavily on humor as I do for one. But like, uh, I mean, if you think about it, we're always both dealing with characters who are really just polishing a turd. You know, they're trying to make, you know, somebody's probably sitting next to an empty swimming pool, you know, listening to the freeway and, and pretending it's a river or something. And that that's, the, you know, that's the definition of romance for me. It's just sort of trying to, to shine a brighter light on whatever surrounds you. And I think our characters are always, you know, at least trying to do that. How do you think the the new phase of reality that we've kind of recently entered is going to affect your writing in terms because both you guys tend to write about everyday folks you know living everyday lives yeah and i think the the people we both tend to write about are going to have the same old problems as usual maybe a little worse you know what i mean i mean i just think more people are going to start feeling the problems that a lot of people have had all along you know in terms of uh you know just logistically uh, having medical insurance, uh, wealth distribution, blah, blah, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. I, 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 again, I, I don't see myself. I mean, 
I don't really see myself making any sort of overt political statement about it. Yeah. I just, I think what whatever's going on is going to color the lives of my characters. I'm, I'm not going to be dropping the names of politicians or anything like that. I don't, I don't, I don't think, I think that kind of limits the work um, personally. Sure. Like that's the thing about being political in a novel. I think is going to be just such a browbeating affair. I mean, all the worst novels of Steinbeck are him, you know, banging a socialist drum you know, I can't read the red and the black. I don't, I mean, even revolutionary novels, they just, I mean, they may be stirring in their time and context, but when you go back and revisit them, they, I, I don't know. I mean, like a good political novel for me would be something like uh, Cider House Rules, where, you know, it's, it's, it's nonpartisan. It's, you know, here's, here's a great argument for pro-choice and here's a great argument for pro-life. Think about that. You decide. I'm not making any judgment on it. That's not my job. That, to me, is what a good political novel should do. Huh. So almost like yes, perpetuate the dialogue. It's the dialogue. You know, politics isn't about trying to indoctrinate the other person. It's just about the dialogue. You know what I mean? That's where you find the common ground. So I don't, you know, I have a feeling a lot of people right now are, are, you know, at their notebooks, really getting ready to write some really earnest and revolutionary novels. Um, I mean, you know, we saw it happen with Vietnam too. I don't know that I will be one of them, even though I'm feeling these things. And I'm sure these, these same uh, external pressures are going to be working on my, working on my character. So they'll be in there implicitly, I guess. As a reader, what, what are you reading these days and what do you like to read? Uh, I'm reading right now. Uh, and uh, I've got a advanced readers copy of Daniel Wallace's new novel. He's the guy that wrote big fish years ago. Oh. Um, he's four or five other novels. It's a novel called extraordinary adventures. That his editor sent to me. It's really good, very charming, fun, buoyant. You know, one of these sort of uh, unsuspecting, unwitting anti-hero types named uh, Edsel Bronk, and that's really good. Um, I'm also reading in manuscript a friend of mine, Drew Perry's book, which uh, I just I, I'm only ten pages in. I don't even know if it has a title yet, but uh, I really loved his book, Kids These Days. I love his voice and, and his timbre and his uh he has a gentle kind-hearted sensibility to him he's very funny um those are the two books i'm reading right now kind of just reading what comes across my pile like either from you know friends looking for a read or, or publishers looking for a blurb yeah uh, what about the pace of things these days and the incursion of technology and so do you do you find that you're reading differently than you did when you were in your twenties or do you have more time to read or less, especially being a, a father of. Young yeah, people? no, you, you just hit it. Yeah. No, being a, being a parent cuts into that more than anything. I mean, sometimes you're just too exhausted. You go, you'll try to reserve that last hour of the day. Okay. The kids are down. I'm going to read for an hour, but then, you know, you fall asleep after six pages because you're so exhausted. Um, I, I don't know if it has, I mean, certainly social network and things like that can be a dis- the distraction, but I mean, you know, you just got to be disciplined. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always watching my other kind of writer acquaintances, like make some big statement, like they're going to walk away from social network. And I'm just like, dude, okay, great. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> you know, I mean, talking about it. I mean, it's like, I mean, I, I you know, I got 8,000 Facebook friends or followers or whatever. And it's like, you know, I decide how much of it, I like it. That's why I do it. I don't do things I don't like, you know? So it, it, it could be a distraction, but I, I couldn't blame it for cutting into my reading time. And like, as far as the pace of my life, I mean, I'm, I spend, you know, six days of my week in underwear, sweatpants. I never even get dressed. I mean, there's, I, I'm not going to leave the house the next three days. I'm just up in the mountains till my family gets here. So um, my, the pace of my life is 
anything that's fast paced, I'm sort of dictating that pace. Do you have electricity at your writing? Oh, you must. Oh yeah, no, it's just nicer than the house we live in. I mean, it's it's like it's it's our it's it's our place, but the, you know, there's the schools. It's just rural, and the schools aren't. Sure. We don't have that access to the family stuff as much here. But uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's not. Uh, it's very rustic, but it's you know, I got good heat, electricity, hot water, sure. all that. Well, what about audiobooks? Is that something that you've explored or enjoy at all? You know, I've talked to to, to the actors that have done mine. They've all been really nice people and very respectful. But I and I I can't really listen to them, and that's no just because you know I hear it one way in my head. Right. Um. For some reason, like I'm contradicting myself a little here, but it is the same work. It's different than the movie. When I can sit down and watch the movie, it's just such a different medium and it's been filtered through somebody else. I can separate it for myself, but I can't do that when I hear the audiobook because I recognize the sentences and the words. And it doesn't matter how good of a job they do, even if they do a better job, you know, yeah. subjectively or whatever than I did. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't ever sit right with me. So I don't listen to them a lot. I did read the, I, I did listen to the most I listened to is the guy that did West of Here. Uh, Vincent, I wish I knew his name. He's a really nice guy. He did a spectacular job just because, you know, he had 48 characters to do. And, you know, he didn't do it in any kind of over-the-top Charles Dickens style. You know what I mean? But he had enough subtle differences. I mean, you could just really see his range as an actor because he had so many to deal with. And so that was kind of impressive. But, um, yeah, it's not something I really think about. My friends in L.A. listen to a lot of them. I can't listen to them because I don't... uh, my my comprehension isn't that good out loud. Oh, interesting. I don't focus that well. I start looking out the window and I'm like, oh, oh look, there's fender bender over there. And then the next thing I know, I've missed three sentences. Sure. Right. Yeah. You can't. It's like for me as a father, I have enough menial tasks where I, something going on in my head to make, you know, like doing dishes and, and that those two things go together pretty well. Yeah, I have to walk the baby, whatever baby we're on at this time, because we're about to go to number three. But there's like an 18-month period where I'm walking a baby in a stroller and a dog to three dogs, depending on how many dogs we have at the time. They're slowly dying off because they're all old. But uh, So I have like, on my non-riding days, I usually have like an hour and a half a day to do nothing but think about stories. Cause the baby's sleeping. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm just I'm just walking around. Do you, well, so Willie performed his book, The Free. Do you, could you see yourself doing something like that? Or does that seem like, no, I'm a Yeah, I suppose I could. I mean, it's not anything I've ever lobbied for. They never asked me to. Um, they might, you know, I have a broadcast background. So certainly, I mean, I think the fear is a lot of times is that writers won't be able to perform it well enough. It'll just take so long to produce. Whereas gotcha. actors have got their chops kind of thing. I know I could probably do it quicker than as quick as any actor. Cause I used to do rip and read on the radio for years. And, you know, I mean, you know, it would be fun, but nobody's ever asked me. And, you know, it depends on what it entails and how much of a commitment must say, I just want to do one thing and that's just write stories. Sure. Okay, so you said is Cave Dave is that the one that we can look forward to next, or is it a different one? Oh God, no. Okay, well, there's this is your life, Harriet Chance. When we when you started, you said uh, revised was my sure. most recent book. So this is your life, Harriet Chance came out, and then uh, Mike Munoz saves the world comes out in 2018, and then this uh, the Dream Life of Huntington Sales comes out in probably 2020, 2021. Cave Dave is something I'm just hatching now that'll probably publish in you know, 2023. That's amazing to live at the earliest far in the future. At the earliest, dude. And I'm not trying to write historic fiction here. Yeah. 
Wow. And it's not that I'm particularly fast. The wheels just kind of move slow. You know, I, I have to keep myself working. So I'm not somebody who finishes a novel and says, I'm going to go on hiatus for a year and get inspired by putting on 30 pounds and taking a cruise. I mean, I got to just kind of keep doing it or I'll just get out of shape. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like being an athlete. If I, if I, if I don't maintain my focus and my, you know, my habits, if I, if I just kind of slack off for six months, it's just like, it's just like a fighter or anybody else. I kind of, I lose my edge. I lose my chops a little. And so I just keep working as a matter of course. I never find myself at a place where it's like, I don't have an idea because again, I don't really work with high concept ideas. I mean, probably to my publisher's dismay, they'd probably love to have books that, that I could uh, give a more exciting elevator pitch for or whatever. But usually they're, you know, essentially they're just uh, explorations of character. Sometimes there's 70 characters in them and the, 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 you know, the fundamental character is the place. But it's always, it's always an exploration of character and, and, and character experience. To my listeners who haven't ever experienced you, where would you point them to start? What, what would be the, the quintessential Jonathan Evanson book? Yeah, probably not West of here. It's the last one I always, it's like one of those books. It's either somebody's like one of their favorite books they've ever read or they want to throw it across the room. Uh, um, so if you're somebody who really likes hiking and, and a bigger narrative challenge, maybe I'd start with that one. But, you, you know, I think everybody's fundamental caregiving or, or just, you know what? I think every writer would just like everybody to start at the beginning, probably, you know? Start with all about Lulu and read straight through. I think if you grow, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's always been my goal as an artist is to develop a audience, you know, not so much. It doesn't really matter to me how big it is. I mean, of course, you want to sell enough to make a living. But really, I just want an audience that's going to continue to keep me on their radar. They're truly like interest, you know. And so like when I listen, to, I'm standing here in my garage. I've got 2000 albums here. And if I go to the K's and I look at the Kinks, you'll see, you know, I have every Kinks album. And so, you know, I would just like everybody to read all the books, you know, wouldn't we all? Yes. You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I don't want to just be, I don't want everyone to read the same book. Sure. I don't know. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Okay, my pleasure. So you're in, you're in Boise? Yeah. And so let me, uh, so we'll get, will we get a chance to hoist the beer? You can get a sitter one night and, you know, maybe come out with Willie and I and yes. John or, you know, okay, good. You've been listening to Jonathan Evanson on 42 Minutes. Be sure and check out his, his books. And for more information, check out his website, jonathanevanson.net. For more information about The Sync Book, our guests, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you'd like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a Sync Book Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, Discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and I'll never stop caring, but the thing about caring is it's inconvenient. Sometimes you've got to give when it makes no sense at all. Sometimes you've got to give until it hurts. (laughs) 